Hey friends, have you ever had questions about a Bible passage that theological study just couldn't really answer? Our guest today suggests that we need to add church history to our interpretation methods in order to avoid some really serious interpretive mistakes, which can have real consequences for our lives. You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 350, Beth Allison Barr and Christian Curiosity. Hey friends, welcome back to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. As always, I am your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here. Definitely grateful that you've downloaded. I know we have a great conversation for you today. It's one I've been looking forward to a lot, and so I, I know uh, it's going to be uh, going to be really. Um, it, not only interesting, but I hope formational for you as well. Our conversation, uh, before we get into that, let me just remind you, uh, you can always find everything that we do here at halfwaytherepodcast.com. Go check out the show notes. There I have, I spent a lot of time working on this, and I know like if you're out there driving in your car or doing the dishes or cleaning and whatever, most people listen to podcasts at their house. I didn't, don't know if you know that, but if you did, uh, that's that's what, uh, you know, you're doing, you're doing other things probably. So, Everything you need, if you need a link, uh, you hear us talk about something, it's all halfway there, podcast.com. You can also, by the way, hit that Patreon button if you want to support the show. Um, you can do that. Some of you do, and I really appreciate it. It helps keep everything running, websites, hosting, all that stuff. I just got a new boom arm as well that uh, you guys help pay for. So I appreciate that very, very much. All right, let's dive into our conversation. I am excited. Our guest today, she is the James Vardman Professor of History at Baylor University. She's also the author of the book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Our guest is Beth Allison Barr. Beth, welcome to Halfway There. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm excited to uh, have you here to have uh, this conversation. I've been kind of, I told you, I've been looking at your book kind of from afar. I saw it uh, at uh, SBL last year and I was like, I got to, I got to check that out and have a conversation with her. But I also want to hear your story and how you kind of got there. So tell us a little bit more about who you are, where God has you right now and uh, what's kind of going on with you before we go back into your story. Yeah, sure. So um, as you said, I'm a professor at Baylor University, which is a Christian R1 research university um, with Baptist roots. And I'm actually also a longtime Baptist. I grew up in the Southern Baptist world. I married a Baptist pastor 10 days before um, I started graduate school and he started seminary at Southeastern. Yeah, we have we have quite the quite the journey. Um, and now 26 years later, we are still married, um, have two kids, and we have been in ministry together during that entire time. Um, my husband has been in several churches, some of them Baptist, some of them, well, one of them not Baptist, um, but currently he is at a Baptist church and is pastor at a very small Baptist church, and I teach Sunday school. So oh, that's great. Yeah. Did you always know you were a teacher? Were you always a teacher? So I think I started realizing I was a teacher sometime in college. Mm. Um, I wouldn't have identified myself that way in high school. I would have identified myself as a writer. I always wanted to be a writer and I was a, I was interested in journalism and I did newspaper writing. Um, And so I would, so I think I had the, the beginnings of becoming a teacher already, but I would have seen myself more as a writer um, until I got in college and I began to realize that I also love teaching. So 
Yeah, interesting. Okay, well, that's that's great. So, thank you. I want to dive into kind of your story and uh, what you know, where kind of how you got here. Um, so, where like where did you grow up and where where are you from? Yeah, so um, my father was in the army. He was a doctor in the army, so we moved around a lot when I was little and settled in Texas. Both my parents are Texans, and so um, I I am. I identify as a Texan, oh, okay. um, spent all my life here. My family's here. Uh, so I actually grew up in a small town, not very small, very far from where I live in Waco. So Waco was the big city when I was a child, um, which is kind of funny, although Waco is becoming actually a big city now, but nonetheless. So I am a local uh-huh. in every sense of the word. Interesting. Okay. So Texas is Bible Belt, right? Like that's kind of was a Christian family. Oh, or yeah. what, was that, what was it? Oh, Oh, yes, yes. No, I grew up in, um, uh, I don't remember not going to church. Uh, my father was always a deacon, um, although he actually came from a Methodist background, married my mother, who was a North American Baptist. Um, and But Texas, there's not very many North American Baptists in Texas, so they ended up at a Southern Baptist church, um, which is where I grew up, really, okay. uh, in the Southern Baptist tradition. Yeah. I love this level of detail. I can tell you're a history professor because it's <laughs> denominations and all this. So that, oh, it matters. It, well, it does. Yeah. Re- really interesting. Uh, not always uh, something people think about, though, but it does. It absolutely does sort of shape your um, how you see your faith, how you see who God is. Right. Was there anything right. you picked up particularly from uh, growing up as a Southern Baptist? Do you think that that was maybe distinctive? Well, So, you know, I tell people that um, during my early years, I don't remember, um, you know, my, my, I think my Baptist faith, I don't remember the distinctives of being a Baptist from very early on. Um, My parents were always very involved in our learning. Some of my earliest memories are my mom doing Bible study. And my parents always taught Sunday school and Bible study together. And it really wasn't until I was in high school that I began to become aware of what it really meant to be a Baptist and what it meant to be a Southern Baptist. Mm-hmm. Um, my best friend in high school was Methodist. And so I grew up also always going to her church. Um, and so it wasn't until much later. And she actually had a had a female pastor, um, although I never actually heard her oh. preach. That was something I didn't really quite th- start thinking about till much later. Um, but it wasn't until really my later high school years that I began to understand what it meant to identify as a Southern Baptist. And for me, that also meant beginning to understand um, distinctive gender roles that mm. I associated with um, with being a Christian in the Southern Baptist tradition. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, before I, I, w- I want to dive into that, but I want to ask also, wh- how did your faith start to become your own? Was there a, Did you have a whether it's a moment or a season when you were like, yeah. Oh yeah. So, um, I, I don't remember not knowing sure. about God. I don't remember not knowing, um, about what it meant to be a Christian. And so while I did make an official, um, uh, uh well, I did make an, a, a, you know, an official acceptance of faith when I was, I was around, 12, 11 or 12. I don't actually remember exactly. And that's when I was baptized. Um, but as I said, it wasn't a dramatic change in my life. It was something that I always knew. And I 
it was sort of a gradual, I think, recognition of it coming to be my own and understanding yeah. that I could disagree with my parents about matters of faith and still believe in the same God. Um, and my parents were also very flexible. Like it didn't mm. upset them for us to have different ideas. And so I've always been very grateful for that looking back on it. That is a gift, isn't it? That's a, that's a thing. Yeah. Cause in our development, we have, you have to explore new ideas, right? You have to right. think about them right. and try them on as it were like, okay, you know, is this oh, yeah. what I want to be? And then you think about it and you've experienced the pitfalls of that particular ideology or whatever. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, um, my parents were never afraid of me being curious. And mm. in fact, I remember this sometimes got, because I would, I remember one time I was checking all of the books in our um, school library about Buddhism. <laughs> and I remember one of the, you know, teachers told my mom, because they were concerned about me because I was reading um, about these non-Christian faiths, but that wasn't something that really bothered my parents. Um, they, they let me be curious and yeah. I am so grateful for that. Well, I'm a huge fan of curiosity. It really is. Uh, yes. It really is the, the key to growth, I think is one of the, one of yeah. the main things. Yeah. Uh, okay. So interesting. So you've kind of always been a little, a little curious and you were, you were looking for other things. Um, how did your, some curious, uh, there you go. Uh, what you how your faith developed then for you as you were you were in that season in high school when you're starting to notice hey mm -hmm. there's actually some restrictions here placed on me what was that oh, yeah. what was that like so it didn't um occur to me to be something to challenge at the time um i grew up in a small texas world small texas town where even though women did work it was often seen as secondary to the um to the, to the husband's income and household. So women often would go in and out of careers, or if they did have a career all of their life, it was often teaching. Um, a lot of my friends, their parents were teachers, and that was seen as very acceptable because it went along with the kids' schedules. Mm -hmm. So they were, you know, off with them in summer, they were off with them at all of the holidays. So it, it didn't occur to me that um, that this was something that I should challenge. I grew up, even though I grew up with a lot of female teachers, I didn't see female preachers. I saw mostly male staff, people who identified as pastors. There was one exception to that. Um, but at the time, I didn't quite realize that um, she was a woman who became a very good friend and a mentor um, who became a Southern Baptist missionary and actually left the mission field over the Southern Baptist faith and message. Um, but when she, I was growing up with her, I did not realize that she was facing some of these challenges. And so it, it didn't occur to me that, especially early on, that there was a problem. This is what everybody did. Right. And this is what everybody taught. And this is what it meant to be godly. Um, and it didn't occur to me that there was a, that it didn't occur to me to think another way. Right. Yeah. It was a soup you were swimming in. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, which makes sense. So when you look back at it now, how do you think that season shaped you and particularly your relationship with God is what I'm curious about. Yeah. So, um, I think it did, you know, this I think was the hardest part for me. It did make it seem like there was a particular way to interpret the Bible. And if you did not interpret the Bible that way, that it would be dangerous to your faith. 
And so, you know, I tell a story in the making of biblical womanhood. I remember where we had um, a uh, one of the church Bible studies. She led women's Bible study at our church, and she came to talk to our youth one night, and she talked about Genesis, and she said that if you don't believe in a literal interpretation of the first few chapters of Genesis, you might as well throw the whole Bible in the trash. Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, I remember, so that actually did become challenging for me later on, um, because as I began to realize there were significant problems with that type of thinking about the Bible, um, but that was, so I think that's probably that very literal understanding that if you are going to be a faithful follower of God, you have to believe the Bible from this particular vantage point. And, um, and so that's probably, I think, the, the biggest impression that um, made, that made a difference um, mm. as I went to college and then on to grad school. Yeah. Okay. What was that different? It was it like, okay, this is the thing I should believe. And then you're always kind of kicking against it or always kind of feeling like yeah. there's a sense of, well, as I said, you know, I had a lot of intellectual curiosity and my parents weren't ever afraid of that. So they weren't afraid of me asking questions. And when you start getting into the context of the Bible, and when you start learning about how the Bible's put together, and when you start understanding history, the literal interpretation does not, there's a lot of problems with it. Yeah. And it's, it doesn't take very much scratching to realize, to, to have the layers flake away and to realize um, that there's a problem with that interpretation. And so I, so I think I begin to realize more and more problems with that particular interpretation um, at the same time, as I was in a fa in a family that had very grounded faith, and uh, which I think helped me to realize that the problem wasn't probably God; the problem was perhaps with our interpretation of God. Mm. And I think that's probably what saved me through all of this: is that I always saw a difference between human interpretation of God and who God actually is. Okay. How did you make that distinction? Cause that's a pretty significant <laughs> distinction. And yeah. a lot of people, I think right now what we see is a lot of people going through deconstruction or whatever you call it, have a hard time with that. So how did you, yeah. but I think it's kind of key. So how did you break that? Make that separation? Yeah. So I think there's several, you know, kind of looking back on it now, I think there's several perhaps pieces that are there. One of them is um, I had very strong faith in my family. And I, that faith was deep and it went, uh, um, and as I said, it, it wasn't afraid of questions. And so, you know, my grandparents were both very grounded in faith. Um, mm. My, you know, both of my parents were, my father actually very early on, my father never believed in creation science. <laughs> he, I mean, he was a doctor. There was like a time in his life where he like tried to, but growing up, he had never been introduced to evolution. He was he grew up Methodist. He had never been introduced to creation science. And so oh, that was actually a new and so it was interesting to me being like, here's my dad who's a deacon at the church. And he never knew that he like it never occurred to him he needed to believe this to believe the Bible. Um, so that was actually a shift for him. But for me, seeing that that, that was a shift for him um was really you know, as I said, it helped me see early on that there was a different way yeah. um, to understand. 
Um, I think also is I have always been a, a reader and I've always loved history. That's how I ended up in history. Um, not just with journalism is I love the stories of people's lives. And so I grew up reading the stories of people in the past who had deep faith. And even though that faith mm. wasn't like mine, they still had that faith. They believed in that in God. And as I got into graduate school and I really became a religious historian, that's what I'm interested in as women in the church. It got me even more involved in deeply reading about the faith of people from hundreds of years ago whose faith looked radically different from mine, but they still believed in the same God I did. And so I think that helped to ground me where I could see that there were people who believed differently about God, but that we all still believed in God. And yeah. so I think that helped me understand um, even very early on that there are that culture and history. I would not have phrased it this way, but I begin to understand that context informs how we see God, but that context isn't God. Right, so, right. Um, you know, I mean, Plato's The Cave made a lot of sense to me. And um, C.S. Lewis and thinking about forms uh -huh. that we only see the shadows on the walls of the cave, but there's a whole new reality out there. And that's kind of what I think about with God, that there's, you know, we only see the shadows, but um, God is so much bigger. Yeah. Well, Paul says something like that, right? Through through glass darkly. Or oh, however, yeah. However says through that, right? glass that's, darkly. Yeah. That's ex it's exactly right. He, yeah. I, and I'm so, convinced um, Paul is pretty influenced by Plato more than we probably expect. Well, it was in the water. It was in the water. Yeah. I mean, that was how he was would have been educated in that type of thinking. And so it's not surprising at all. But um, it also makes a lot of sense. I mean, Plato's not the only one who came up with ideas like that in history. And there's this understanding that we that there is more to this world than what we see here. Mm -hmm. And and that's been a constant in human history, that there's more to this world. Um, so all of those things, as I said, help help me help me be firm in believing there is more to this world um and that i believe that more to the world is the christian story yeah 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 all right friends i want to just highlight one thing that beth just said because it really i think is the key one you know one of my key main objectives is to help us grow in spiritual maturity maturity to christ and one of the things that will that you must have in order to get there is curiosity, right? Is an understanding of traditions and faith beyond your own. It's actually mm -hmm. stunting to your growth if you can only read your own uh, people of your own persuasion, right? That's it. You actually have to go oh, outside. Yeah. And so this was certainly the case for me as well as well as I started to go. I say sometimes I went to college and learned to study the Bible because I got a degree in biblical studies, and I went to seminary and learned how to pray because I did spiritual formation and stuff like that. And so that was where I had to get outside of, and I learned some practices from a Jesuit priest at right. a retreat center, things like that. So oh, yeah. step outside friends and it's, it's worth it. You don't have to, just because you read it doesn't mean you have to agree with it. You just learn and discuss. Exactly. Exactly. That's yeah. I, I've never been afraid to read different ideas. Um, and I think that's, I, I really am thankful for my parents for that. Um, I'm also thankful for my husband. I mean, we got married so young. He could have, if he had been a different type of man, 
things could have gone differently in my story, but he's also very intellectually curious and hasn't ever been afraid. Mm. Um, and so I really, I really am grateful for that too, because he was willing to ask the questions with me. Yeah. Well, I'm guessing that's part of what brought you together. I would guess. You know, probably so. I mean, I, sometimes I think about it. You're, we were, we were so young, you know, sometimes I'm like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe how young <laughs> we were. Uh, you know, we were like, I was, we were like 21 and 22 oh, when yeah. we got married. So, I mean, now I'm just looking back. I'm like, we were just children, but, um, but indeed, I think he was, he became interested in me because we were in a class together. And, um, and it, so, I mean, it was, it was definitely our, he was very attracted to my intellect, to yeah. the way that I came, you know, he was never afraid of that. And, um, and so I always encourage that. And so, yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. That's good. I can relate with you, by the way, we, my wife and I got married at, we were 20. We were both about, I was, yeah. I was like six weeks and she was maybe two months away from turning oh, 21. Don't tell right? me that my son is turns 19 this summer. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh my gosh, yes. I've got, I've got a, uh, I've got a 21 year old daughter myself. And I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's too you're too young. Who didn't who didn't say, hey, maybe you guys should not. Anyway, whatever. It's all right. Where yeah. it works out, but you know how it is. So yeah, that's, no. that's good. Uh it definitely is a weird thing. But okay, so you so you're this intellectual curiosity and you're kind of cultivating it and you start to study history. Is that like is that what, what happened? You decide to to go and um yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. You always think about how our journeys progress. And, um, I'm not, I, I'm not a Calvinist. I don't have a reformed bone in my body. I tried for a while. Um, but Everybody does. I had to give it up pretty, I just, you know, it just didn't work out for me. So I'm not saying, I don't think God creates specific paths that we have to follow. And if we don't follow in those footsteps, we miss out on what God has for us. But I think that there are general, um, moments where God opens doors and, um, and the way the doors that opened for me created me to have this very peculiar set of circumstances where I became a medieval religious historian trained in feminist scholarship, married to a Baptist <laughs> pastor, um, which is an unusual set of circumstances. And not only that, but I was actually able to continue my career as a scholar, um, I have never not been teaching and researching at a university mm. since my husband and I married. I've never had to step away from that. Um, and so I think that allowing me to do that has allowed um, allowed allowed my research sort of to continue to progress and my understanding of God to progress at the same time that I saw a church. We were in churches that were going that we saw sort of regressing on mm. these issues about intellectual curiosity and faith and that having an impact um, on having an impact on us and also on our ministry. Um, so I think those two things sort of together. Um, and of course, me always being in that academic environment um, uh, meant that I was always sharing things and talking with my husband, who's also very, uh, 
he's he has no desire to go back to school and get a PhD. He's always says he watched me, but he is also very intellectually bent. So, mm. um, so there is a lot of curiosity with him too. Yeah. What does that mean? You, you were seeing churches regressing. What does that, what does that mean? Oh yeah. No, no, no. So um, we had a church in North Carolina that we were at and um, we probably should have been a little, we should have asked more questions before we went to it, but it actually went KJV only while we were there oh, wow. that you could only use the KJV version, which is actually something more common in places like North Carolina um, and some parts of the South. Uh, and we were actually living in an area that was very KJV only prone, which I didn't understand. I've learned a lot more about the history of that area. I didn't understand it when we moved there. But um, it went KJV only while we were there. And that was when my husband began looking for a new job. Yeah. Um, and that's actually how we ended up back in Texas okay. was uh, he decided he could not stay at a church that went KJV only. You know, it's actually very, we've recently heard from one of our youth we had at that church and she just got ordained into the ministry. And so, you oh, know, wow. sometimes I look back and I'm like, that was a hard season for us, but. Um, one of, one of our kids, you know, she wrote us to tell us how we had encouraged her and to move this. And so I'm just like, you know, you never know where God is using you. So I'm I'm very grateful for that. But, um, but it did, it went KJV only and we, we got out of there, um, and then ended up at a church that we thought was moving, you know, still conservative, but we saw more intellectual curiosity there. Mm -hmm. Um, but it went backwards on that too. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, I I don't know if it's friends, I don't know if it's valuable to define why that's kind of an issue, but typically uh, what it says to me, if a church goes KJV only, it's probably pretty fundamentalist. Very like, Oh yeah. Yeah. No question. And, and what that means for people who don't know, it means that um, the King James version of the Bible, which was published in 1611, there's a whole history around it. um, But some folk, in a very weird way in the 19th century, begin to argue that there was double inerrancy, that not only was the Bible inerrant, but that the KJV only translated in the English language was also inerrant. It's not, it's it's a crazy argument, um, but that's what, so people who believe, who believe in KJV only argue that that, is, that the English version of the Bible is divinely inspired um, just like the actual manuscript, the very words that are used are sort of the words of God, um, which is is a very strange right. argument when you actually think about it. Yes. Okay. So I told you I studied un- biblical studies in undergrad, and this was a huge thing for me. Like I studied so much of this, I was because it was just made me crazy oh, yeah. as I'm learning all the stuff about textual evidence and you know all this stuff, and then going, yeah. Why would anyway? So that, it, but it is, but I see, I think it is detrimental to people's development as well. So that's a, that's a, oh, yeah, it is. I mean, it's, um, it's also very, you know, if you think about the problems with racism in a churches, you know, to argue that the KJV only Bible, which was translated by a particular um, aristocratic group of white oh, men wow. in an imperial country. Um, is the inspired word of God. I mean, the racist undertones to that argument are just horrific. Yeah. And, and yet that's, and people don't, don't understand, you know, I, I don't, people don't think about it because a lot of people who use the KJV only Bible believe that are in mostly white churches and white spaces. And it just, 
doesn't occur to them to think about what they are saying about their brothers and sisters in Africa um, who yeah. are using a very different translation of the Bible um, and do not have access or even, I mean, why would we force them to read 17th century English? Right. We can't even <laughs> I mean, understand just, it, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. So, I mean, it's this, it's a very, it, the, the racial um, overtones oh, of that are just so blatant, um, wow. but people don't understand it. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting context also. Okay. Uh, which, okay. I'm going to just ask this question here because I think it's really fascinating. <laughs> I think that's yeah. what you do. Obviously you're a historian, but that's what like, I think you bring so much of that is really, really needed is this sort of historical context, right? To understand right. not only what's happening, but where did this come from? Why is it happening? Um, right. Which is one of the keys, I think, to biblical interpretation, right? You need the literary context, but you have mm -hmm. to have the historical context as well because it will inform right. how you understand it. Um, is that so like, this is just one example of the KJV thing, but um, you write about that with Paul in uh, the Make Your Biblical yeah. Womanhood. Talk about that a little bit and tell us why we got, we need to think a little broader about our historical context and understanding. Yeah. So what I always tell my students is that um, whenever you come to the Bible, you never approach a text. It doesn't matter what text it is. You never approach a text as a blank slate. You never walk to it without any expectations on it, without carrying some preconceptions about what you're going to see there, or when you see certain words, how you're going to understand them. We always carry who we are to the text. Um, the difficulty of, and so, you know, on the one hand, people get upset about that. And they're like, you're saying that we can't understand the Bible as ordinary people. And I'm like, no. Actually, what's remarkable about the Bible is how the story of Jesus has remained consistent, despite how much we have messed up mm -hmm. um, in biblical interpretation, et cetera. The story of Jesus always comes through loud and clear. And, um, and that remarkable, you know, there's so much about the Bible that the message is consistent, regardless of who the interpreters are, regardless of what language it's translated in. And I said, that's actually pretty remarkable. Um, what we miss, though, is that there are other parts of the Bible that um, if we do not understand the historical context, um, we can do a lot of damage with trying to apply those things directly to our modern lives. Um, and so, I mean, if you just think about, like, I've been reading through the Old Testament with my Sunday school class, and there's some pretty horrific passages in the Old Testament that are okay. difficult even for us today. Um, and if you think about the rise of like Christian nationalism today, um, there are a lot of clearly is a lot of influence of people taking that idea of Israel as God's chosen nation and trying to apply it to um, 21st century U.S. And there is I mean, that's just that's a ludicrous argument. The nation of Israel was a very unique circumstance brought about only to bring Jesus into the world. It was for a limited time. The New Testament, Paul, what Paul did and Peter, the visions of Peter was to explode that this doesn't matter anymore. Um, you know, we're very grateful that the nation of Israel, God's chosen people are still very significant, but at the same time, God is the God of everyone and we right. aren't going to have chosen nations anymore. And so, but 
what people have done is they have ripped out that language about a chosen nation and applied it to modern um, right. to modern nations without any understanding of that context. And I mean, that's just that's just dangerous. And we're seeing the impact of that right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all that all that context. Interesting. Okay. I think historical context is so undervalued. But so friends, this is why you need to study, absolutely study the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, study your theology, but add history to that because it is so, so valuable. I was going to ask you too, you're a medieval historian. What, like, what should we learn from the medieval church? Because I think as, as, uh, as Protestants, I didn't realize there was history between, you know, the apostles and the Reformation, really, right? So there's right. there's stuff in there, and there's a lot we can learn. Actually, it's really pretty interesting. But what what would you say we should learn from our Christian brothers oh, and sisters gosh. in this season? So uh, I will tell you that um, I'm my third book is going to be um, it's called "Losing Our Medieval Religion um, and the Cost of Forgetting History." For white evangelicals. And so it's going to deal with this exact topic. Oh, cool. Um, cool. The cost of losing medieval history. Uh, so I would argue that there is so much that we have lost. Um, one of the things, I mean, I think even this, this whole understanding, if we talk about um, even though this very literal understanding of the Bible in the medieval world, um, while they were very faithful Christians and very committed to the biblical text, um, they did not understand it. They did not read it in the way that we read it today. Medieval people would not have read Genesis as a science textbook on how the world, I mean, that is such a new idea. We don't understand how new that idea is. And so really, you know, for really 1900 years of history, Christians believed in God and believed in the Bible with not without trying to turn Genesis one through three into a science textbook. And I think even just that understanding kind of can be like, it helps reset a little bit. It's like, are you saying that you know so much more than that your faith is so much better than anyone who came before you? I mean, is that really what you're saying? Um, It's not saying that you can't have new ideas, but I think we need to put our new ideas within the context of the long history of our faith. Um, And so I think, you know, the understanding medieval Christianity can help us contextualize. Um, I think it also can help us that, you know, uh, chronologically speaking, especially in the early Middle Ages, they were not very far removed from the biblical world. And so they remembered, they carried traditions, they remembered those early saints, they remembered the people um, who made a difference in spreading the gospel of Christ. And a lot of these people were women. Mm. And we have forgotten those women today. We, and you know, I think we could not make the arguments we make about women preaching today, if we understood the role that women played in um, in early in the early spread of the gospel in the early medieval world, and and so I mean just even that we just by divorcing ourselves from that whole part of our faith, we have enabled ourselves to create very narrow understanding of not only what we should do as Christians but who God is, 
and we have made our God very, very small. Um, by yeah, so I well, I totally agree with that. Um, I think so. And not only was it was it women who were involved and were in spreading the the gospel. It was the yeah. church's treatment of women that set them apart. Oh yeah. So uh, the rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark, I, I'm sure you've, but was like amazing. <laughs> He's one of my me. Baylor colleagues. Is he? Yeah. Oh, that's a, it. Was it was for? So I had to read that in a very limited church history classes that I took. But that yeah, yeah. like was so formational for me to go. Oh yeah, one of the main things that helped the church spread was the way they treated women, and then here we are. 21st century America doing the exact opposite. It makes me crazy, including yeah. same, well, same with pandemics, which also is a whole nother issue, but we don't have to talk about it. Oh gosh. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I think, I think a better way to phrase that it's not that Christian, that the early church, um, the early church did not change the status of, there was so many women, these wealthy widows, in these wealthy women in the Roman world, as well as in the Jewish world. I think we forget that there were women teaching in synagogues um, during the first century. And the early church built on that, these, these, these significant women who shaped these congregations, who then joined with the early Jesus movement and helped support Paul and helped to spread the gospel themselves. And I think what we, um, and we have forgotten that today. I mean, even our Bible translations, we, we translate the stories of those women's in ways to write out um, how, how there's significant leadership. You know, I've, I've been mm -hmm. working on a chapter talking about Tabitha. And, you know, she's the one Peter raised. And it's just so striking to me how we've turned her into, you know, this um, leader of a sewing bee. Um, when she was a disciple, probably on parallel leadership with Peter. And I mean, that's why he ran back to raise her from the dead uh, is because she was so significant in mm -hmm. this early church uh, movement. But we have reduced her to a woman who ran a sewing bee at her local church. <laughs> right. And I mean, which isn't and which doesn't mean that's not an important thing, but it is clearly trying to it's not being one of the one of the main leaders in the early church. And that's kind of what we've done to her. Yeah. Wow. That's OK. So I like to ask this question. Um, have you gone through a season of like a dark night of the soul, spiritual desert, something along oh, yeah. those lines? What tell us, tell us one of those stories and maybe how that shaped up for you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I more than one, more than one in my life. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, a couple of things. Um, I, I don't remember who told me this, um, but I remember somebody saying that we shouldn't be surprised when this world is hard mm -hmm. and we can't see God. Um, because the whole reason God had to come was to show us his presence, because it's hard to see mm -hmm. him sometimes in the midst of the suffering of this world. And so um, it, it's sometimes it's hard to see God. And it's been hard to see God a couple of times in my life. Um, uh, you know, I can think most recently when my husband, you know, 2016 and 2017 were really, really hard years for me. And I had a lot of, um, anger towards God 
and as well as a lot of not being able to see what God was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what maybe saved me from walking away during that time was that I didn't feel like it was wrong to be angry at God. Mm. Um, I had read enough of people in the past um, who had written pretty angry things towards God, like, where are you, God, and the despair. You know, one of my favorite letters of despair is one written by a guy named Petrarch in the 14th century. I know that I'm a medieval historian, and in which he is so upset at the church, he writes this thing where he says, what have we become? You know, we are to be these fishermen of these God called us to be fishermen of souls, but now we have, essentially, he says, the church is eating the souls of people instead of caring for them. And this is horrible. And he said, you know, he says, I am so, my soul is so sick that I literally, my body has become sick too. And um, mm. I think that type of despair is normal. And I think it's, I think it's okay. And I think if we realized, if we recognized that it was okay to be in those spaces, um, it would make us less likely to walk away from our faith during those spaces if we felt like it was okay. It's okay to express anger. I mean, this world is not fair. This world is hard. And this world hurts. Um, and things happen that, that completely disrupt everything that we thought. and. You know, the the age-old question, you know, good things happen to really bad people while bad things happen to really good people. And the question is, you know, why God? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've asked that question to God, why God? And I keep coming back to, I think in my faith, um, I keep coming back to you know, I actually, I, I just was talking about Julian of Norwich not too long ago, and we celebrated her day. Um, she's a, a 14th century, early 15th century medieval saint. And she has this beautiful image in her, in her showings, these visions that she um, wrote down that she said she got from God, um, in which God showed her a hazelnut. And she said, it's so small, you know, how, why is this even important at all? Um, and God essentially says, just as I love that hazelnut and I made that hazelnut, you know, I made you and I mm-hmm. made the world. And so even when we feel so, so small that nobody could care about us, there is a God who is so much bigger. And that recognition of how big God is um, gives me a lot of peace and gives me the courage to keep going. Has God ever spoken to you like that? Uh, yes, I will say I have actually heard God speak. I'm I'm a very traditional Baptist. I don't really have a charismatic bone in my body either. So, um, I mean, I don't I don't argue against people who have those experiences, but I am not prone to having those experiences. Sure. Let's just put it that way. Um, but I remember there was one time when after my husband was fired and we didn't know where we were going and it was just everything, you know, we'd lost. We'd lost half our income. Um, we, you know, we just had no idea what was going to happen. It was a very, very hard time. And of course, part of it made it even worse because I was like, my husband was right. <laughs> you know, I was like, we, we did the right thing. Yeah. And this happened to us. And I remember, and my husband um, had applied to a position at a church and he had not 
gotten that it was like one that seemed really perfect and I remember going past and I was like God why didn't you do this I was like everything about this seemed perfect you could have stepped in right here why didn't you do this and I heard very clearly God say because that church doesn't need you and I mean, it just stopped me in my tracks and it may, you know, it completely reset. I was like, you know, and, and one other time, a very dark place um, in my, which I talk about in the last chapter of my book, I won't give you spoilers. <laughs> um, but that was another time where I heard God speak. And it was a time um, when I uh, was in a, where I really felt completely abandoned by God. And I remember looking up at the at the night sky and i heard god say what god had said to abraham as well as to hagar mm. is that uh you can't count these stars but i have made them all for you and just that you know those those two moments those are the only two times i've heard god speak um but they both um but i have never forgotten them and as i said i and I still believe them. In fact, as I saw what happened with my husband and I, God put us where he needed us. Yeah. And it wasn't at that church. It was some, he needed us elsewhere. And that has, you know, helped me, you know, having that sort of sense of purpose um, and knowing that the story of my, God is, my story fits into a story that's a lot bigger than me. Yeah. And I'm thankful to be a part of that story. I love that. So it sounds like that gave you some perspective on, even though you were going through this hard time, trusting right. was worth it. Yes. Yeah, it was. And, um, and I think even if you don't feel like you can trust at all, I think it's, I think that's okay. As I said, what gave me a lot of peace, I actually read my grandmother's, um, um, daily devotional. In fact, it's all bent up. The pages are bent up. It's a daily devotional written by a woman who was married a man when a missionary to China, he got really sick. She had to come home and she lost everything she thought God was doing for her. And she wrote a devotional called streams in the desert. Uh And, um, and I, anyway, it was my grandmother's devotional and I have read, I mean, I, read through that every single day um, during some of the, you know, the darkest times of my life. And it was so helpful to me because I could hear her anguish too, as she met God in these very dark spaces in her life. Yeah. I love that. I think we need to hear it, right? We need to hear those stories that that remind us that not only uh, is the dark night of the soul normal, not hearing from God, the spiritual desert, whatever you want to call it, it's normal, but also, there's hope at the end. There's hope to yeah. that God, even though as one friend, um, she, I don't even know if she, if she, she knows that I quote her on this all the time, but she said, the desert can be a really beautiful place if you know what to look for. Right. So, um, right. It's That's exactly right. You just got, you just, you, you, we all go through it, but it is something that God uses to refine us and teach us about, uh, who he is. I love that. Okay. Um, I do. I mean, we talked a little bit about about the book. We only have maybe a few minutes, but uh, the book is "The Making of Biblical Womanhood." You have some really interesting, I think, in, insights about the way that history shapes how we interpret, which I think is really fascinating. So, the one I'm a chapter I'm reading mm-hmm. at the moment is the one about Paul, and I love how you you start with, yeah, uh, you know, oh, women come into your office going, "I hate Paul," right? Because I don't like the way <laughs> he's been weaponized yep. against me. Uh, which is really the worst uh, use of scripture. I think we can all agree on that. Yes. Uh, but 
so talk about, can you share with us a little bit about how a historical interpretation or at least bring some history to Paul is not, or actually clarify some things, helps us out? Oh gosh. I know yeah. it's a big question, but so, you can do it. No, no, I can, you know, um, I don't understand how we have gotten to this place where we know that Paul is writing letters to individual churches to deal with individual problems. And somehow we have taken his writings to individual churches in these very particular circumstances, and we have taken them out and tried to apply them to the entire church. Um, I, I don't understand that. I don't understand, you know, like if we, I tell people all the time because they're like, well, women weren't pastors in the Bible. And I'm like, there aren't any pastors in the Bible. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, if we think about the modern office of pastor, it doesn't exist in the Bible. It's a culturally specific office that developed in the post-Reformation world. Um, and it has no biblical, um, you know, it has, it has maybe, you know, we can try to correlate it to some of the things we see in the early church, but it has no direct correlation. Um, so what are the offices in the early church? The offices in the early church are those of apostle and disciple and deacon and house church leader and women did all those things yeah and so i mean it's just really it's like we had so even just understanding the context of how the early church worked can help us understand what paul is certainly not saying <laughs> when he gives when he writes those words about women um in the church um, so, and I think like I was just reading a book, um, that was describing how women in the early church, um, there were models of homemakers of women in the early church. And I'm like, there is not, there are no homemakers in the <laughs> early church. I guarantee you that Dorothy Patterson's idea of homemakers did not exist in first century Rome. Um, and so I just even... I think having that just a little bit of historical context about how that world actually functioned yeah. and how um, can help us make sense of sort of the more ludicrous claims that we hear um, in our modern churches today that have tried to divorce Paul from that aspect, from, from the historical context. Yeah, I think that is really important. I think there's two ways, right? So understanding certainly the ways that they, that, uh, what life was actually like in Rome and what Paul was probably speaking to. Right. And then um, maybe how we came to the understanding of what, of the gender role today. Right. And there's, there's a lot of yeah. history to that. Oh gosh. In the last 70, yeah. 80, hundred years or whatever, but which, <laughs> yes, which, there is. which can help you understand. Right. Which is one of the, one of the big deals. Um, so. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, just a little, I think even just helping people understand that the role of pastor today is a, it right. does not exist in the Bible, can just make people stop and be like, oh, huh, maybe, uh, maybe there is some significance to historical context. Right. Um, and, and that historical context does not diminish the Bible as God's word. It just helps us better understand God's word. Absolutely. And that's not to say that pastors, we don't want pastors, right? That they're not valuable. They don't bring My something valuable. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But it is to say, hey, we have to we have to understand the what that there's more to this and that we need to be 
uh, maybe thinking through it differently, which is what I would hope That's to That's exactly do. right. Yeah, I love that. All yeah. right, so uh, is there is there? I don't know if you got to go because we're at, we're at eleven o'clock your time, but uh, if you do, let me know. Um, I'm okay. Okay, but I wanted to ask um, about so the making a biblical woman. I mean, this is pretty. You you're going after uh, in some ways some the the biblical manhood and womanhood people oh yeah no <laughs> you're, question. you're like with a pointed stick okay yeah 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 uh that's good so what what is uh like what what are you hoping that people will get when they read uh, when they read this book and what are you what are you hoping to, yeah. to do well you know i've said before the making of biblical womanhood was really um it was really a last ditch effort it was desperation really um i never meant to write it i was asked to write it um, and it took me a long time to say yes, uh, cause I just didn't, sh- wasn't sure if, if, if I could help, but I finally became convinced that maybe my perspective as a medieval historian, as well as my experience, um, in the evangelical world and still in this evangelical world could maybe get people to pause. That's really what the making of biblical womanhood Mm. is trying to do. It's trying to get people to pause and ask that question. I ask in the beginning of the Paul chapter, what if I'm wrong? Yeah. And, um, I, I don't, you know, I've convinced a whole lot more people than I ever thought I was going to. Um, it's actually really surprising how effective it has been. My main goal really though, was just to get people to pause and ask you know, what if I'm wrong? Um, and maybe these people who believe differently from me are faithful Christians too. Um, and then of course, you know, ultimately, as I think, help people understand that even if patriarchy works for them, it doesn't work for everyone. Yeah. And uh, theology, you know, Lucy Pepiet has that beautiful question, where does your theology lead? And theology that subjugates women does not lead to a good place. Right. Yeah. It doesn't lead to anything good. Um, interesting. Well, so I love that. I, th- I think for me, the the main so far, I'm like I said, I'm only a couple chapters in, but I'm really uh, encouraged by reading it. The, the main uh, question that I think is really challenging to me is this idea that I'd never thought of before. And I was like, how did I never think of this? <laughs> this idea that, hey, the patriarchy is the way Rome was, right? Yeah. So so what Paul is recommending right. is not stay with your culture. That was not, that right. was not what he was doing. And so exactly the, right. the thing today that we see with, you know, biblical gender roles or whatever is just trying to reinforce the way an American culture was at one time. Exactly. And exactly. So to go, oh, wait. That's not how the kingdom of God works, right? That's just not how it works. Right. No, I think, and and that's why I started off, you know, I, the making of biblical womanhood is the way I teach my women's history classes at Baylor. And I have found teaching, I've been in the classroom teaching these since 2008, um, so a long time. And I have found that my Baylor students often don't understand what patriarchy is. They, you know, they come, which doesn't, which means that they don't really, it's hard for them to understand um, women's history without understanding the impact of patriarchy throughout history. So that's why I I always start off with my students, helping them understand um, that patriarchy is this system, this human system that manifests 
everywhere in human history, but always in different ways. Um, but the thing that's continuous is that women are always second to men. And that has an impact. And so helping them understand that historical structure and the evidence that it is something that exists um, is the first step in helping them to understand what, you know, essentially the impact of patriarchy in our modern world today. So that's why I started off the Making a Biblical Womanhood with that chapter on um, let's just talk about what patriarchy is. Yeah. Um, and I've been surprised about how well that worked too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it so. was really it, like, it was, I, I'm pretty sure I exclaimed as soon as I read that, I was like, Oh, right. That makes sense. Right. Okay. That, so yeah. it really turned on a light bulb. And so I appreciate the, yeah. the way that you uh, approached that. Um, and it's, it is a, so I, I kind of joked that this is kind of, you're coming for people, but really it is, it is a kind way to help people understand where you're, where you're coming from, where you're, what you're Thank doing. Thank you for saying that. Uh, so <laughs> I, I think that's, that's, well, that's, I'm, I am a sucker for a great title though. So I do, I think, I think that's good. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I think that's really good friends. I would recommend uh, reading. If this is an issue that you've struggled with, uh, certainly I think uh this book, The Making Biblical Womanhood, is in the what I'm going to call the pantheon of books that I think are available today that you should absolutely read. You quote the other one. I I didn't. T- I was mentioning to you some of the people I interviewed earlier, like that kind of just changed the way I saw some of these things. Kristen Kobes Dume was one of those, right? So oh, yeah, Jesus and oh, John yeah. Wayne. You quote her. So yeah, she's a good friend. Yeah. So um, anyway, I put you guys. Kind of, there's kind of this little little group of books that uh, I would. Yeah. absolutely recommend reading for that. Okay. So that's all really interesting. I appreciate you just taking a little time to share some of your story and share some of this, uh, your thoughts with us. Fascinating to me. I've really, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, let me just tell everybody, friends, you can get again, halfwaytherepodcast.com is where I've got all the links to everything. Uh, Beth's website is bethallisonbar.com. That's two R's. You can go find it there and uh, connect. Uh, you sign up for Beth's newsletter. Go check that out. You should absolutely be on it. Um, and uh, that's it. So that's kind of everything. So Beth, is there anything that you want to leave us with? You know, um, I just want to let people know that there is hope that God I think that God does not look like the the white evangelical church. I think God is so much bigger than the white evangelical church and has always been. And so I just want people to realize that there is hope, I think, at the end of the tunnel because it doesn't rest on people. Amen. I love it. Beth, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks for having me. 